In chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, Paul has a great theme, which is the unity that we have in Christ. We've entitled this message, The Concern of the Gospel, or One of the Concerns of the Gospel, which in this case, for Paul, is Christian unity. How can Christians be united or combined together? How can they be on the same page? And let's begin by considering a few questions. Do you have, or let's not make it personal, let's make it corporate. Do we, as a society, do we, as humanity, have peace and unity today? Why do we not have peace and unity? Because I think if we look around the world, all of us quickly say, you know what? Peace and unity are not the way we would describe the world at the current moment. Well, why? Why is that the case? Why isn't the world unified? There seems to be no peace and no unity amongst nations internationally, certainly not at the moment, and we haven't seen hardly any of it over the last century as well. At this present time, for instance, there are wars being fought. There's great uncertainty about both economic markets, about the current and future aggression of nations. But at the same time, everyone, or almost everyone, almost all the politicians in the world and most of the people in the world say they want peace, they want unity. Well, if everyone wants it, everyone desires it, why is it not the case that we have it? Why can't we seem to get it? Or if we get it for a small moment, why can't we hold on to it? How is it that everyone wants it and yet no one seems to really have it? Or let's look closer to home, just our own country. Even if we look at our own country, do we experience peace and unity in this nation at the current moment? Certainly not. There are strikes, quarrels, disagreements, slanders, suspicion. We've just gone through another election cycle. And what happens there? Politicians speak past each other. They yell at each other. They call each other names. There's very little desire for unity or peace. Or even if there is a desire, we could at least say the desire is not being realized. We love to be divided or to allow others to divide us into subsections, into groups. Identity politics, sometimes it's called. But this is not just a new thing in politics. This is worldwide, universal, and longstanding in history. Well, if we don't have peace and unity in, in the whole world, and we don't have peace and unity in this nation, what about a smaller group? Let's go a little deeper. Do we have peace and unity among individuals within your friend set and within your family? And what we would have to respond to that, if we're being honest, is more often than not in our homes, our marriages, our families, we're not experiencing a deep-seated unity. And by unity, we mean more than just everyone in the family is living in the same house. We've all perhaps experienced those moments, if not a long-standing situation, where you can have mother, father, all the children living in the same house. So in that sense, they're unified, they're in the same place. But there's not real unity. There's not real agreement. There's strife and frustration and annoyance. There's no peace. Perhaps you keenly feel that lack of peace and unity in your own family at the moment. So does Christianity have anything to say to all this? Does Christianity have anything to say to the world, to our nation, to individuals and families? And the answer emphatically is yes, it does. In fact, it makes an audacious claim, one of the most audacious it could make, and that is that only through Jesus Christ or only in Christianity can any assemblance of peace 
and unity ever be found as a reality. The only way you can really have peace and unity, the, the true deep-seated peace and unity that Paul's going to talk about here, is if you respond to Jesus. Or, to say it a different way, if you become a Christian. That's what he's going to tell us. And that, in turn, transforms your relationships, your family, your country, and your world when others join in with that as well. You might remember Paul, last week, completed chapter 1 by instructing the Christians at this fledgling church in Philippi to band together, to be tenacious Christians following Christ. And he uses that imagery of both a, a team of athletes as well as a member of an army. And he says, band together, defend one another, defend the truth, defend the faith, hold fast to it, and pass it on to the next generation. And in order to do that, he told them, you must be unified. That's a part of it. That's part of how we band together. We choose unity together. And in chapter 2, Paul's going to continue that theme, talking about unity, but now he's going to add more emotional force, you might say. Because the Christians there were facing two problems. They were facing attacks from without and attacks from within. The attacks from without, Paul will get to in chapter 3. There were false teachers who were trying to come into the church and teach them a false way. But there were also disagreements from within, which were causing strife and potential division. He'll get to that in chapter 4. And so Paul wants this fledgling Christian church to experience true peace and unity through Jesus because that's essential for them and for every true Christian, every true Christian church. And now he's going to tell them both what it is and how they can have it and pursue it. And his message to them and to us by extension is that as Christians, we must be unified with one another, with other Christians, in order to seek to follow Jesus, or to say it a different way. As we seek to follow Jesus as an individual Christian, one of the ways we must do that is by banding together with other Christians and unifying together with them. And he begins, we'll pick it up in verse 2 and we'll come back to verse 1, but he begins with this idea that complete unity is something that God provides. God provides the basis for complete unity for every true Christian, both within your family uh, context as well as within the church context. And that's his, his primary idea here is within the church. You can have true Christian unity, if you are a Christian, with other Christians in and through Christ. And he's going to tell us how that can work its way out. So he says this unity is complete and God is the one who provides it. Verse 2. Here's how he says it. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Paul, in verses 1 to 4, that's actually one really long run-on sentence. Uh, that he does. But the main point in the sentence is be unified. And that's why he gives these four elements of unity. They're not exhaustive, but he's, he's capturing the essence of what unity is. And he says, Christians, you must have a oneness of spiritual purpose. You must be on the same page. Christians in a body, a church body, you must be working together for a common goal with a common outlook, a common starting point. A common center of gravity, we might say, that flows from a common allegiance to a common source, the ultimate source, who is Jesus. And Paul is going to show us that this unity is exemplified in Jesus, which he'll get to in a moment. But he says that when we seek this unity, it pleases God, it strengthens the church, and 
for Paul's case, it brought great joy to his heart, too, when he saw that the Philippian Christians were seeking to pursue this. And so he uses the imagery uh, when he says, fulfill my joy. It's actually the image of someone who's filling up a, a cup or a chalice with a drink all the way to the very brim. He says, complete my joy. Fill it up all the way to the brim. How, how do we do that, Paul? We love you, Paul, because you're our church planter. You are our pastor. We just sent money to you. We just sent one of our best workers to help encourage you. And Paul, what can we do to encourage you? He says, you want to encourage me? You want to make me happy, so to speak? You want me to be full of joy? I already have a great deal of joy, but you want me to have an overabundance of joy all the way to the brim? Then actively pursue being unified and at peace with your fellow Christian. Because that will bring glory to God. It will strengthen your church. And so he uses four phrases here. Be of the same mind. That's saying, have the same intention. Of the same love. Loving each other, as we're told throughout the scriptures, we love him because he first loved us. So love God first when we become a Christian. We now are able to love and have a relationship with God. And then from that love of God, it flows out to our love of other human beings. So he says, love each other. Having the same love. Have the same spirit. That's literally translated, be one souled. Have the same soul. Perhaps some of you have met two individuals. Perhaps it's a married couple. Or this does happen in rare occasions with identical twins as well, where they seem to be able, pretty consistently, to finish each other's sentences, to finish each other's thoughts, to be on the same page. I remember when growing up, <clears throat> my youth pastor, uh, who was at the church for more than 20 years, at one point, his brother, one of his brothers, moved into the area and was also helping with the youth group. And if you saw them from a dis distance, even though they weren't twins, you would think they were the same person. But interestingly, whenever we'd have a youth activity, or in some cases, we would go on a youth trip for a week at a time, what I thought was so interesting is my youth pastor even said this to me one time. He said, I can tell my brother like, what the goal is and what we want done, and then I just leave it to him because I know he'll do the exact same thing I would do. So I don't have to worry about it. He's like, it's, it's like having a clone of myself. And so we have two of us sharing the load. I thought that was an interesting statement to have because not all brothers would be of the same mindset, right? But in this case, they were. Well, that's the sort of same spirit or one-souled idea that he's talking about. Being completely on the same page, having the same goal, going the same route to accomplish the same purposes. And that's what he gets to in the fourth phrase, the same purpose. Our life as Christians and our life together as a Christian church must be directed toward a single God-given goal. And so here we see the two-part nature of the unity. He says we need to complete the unity that God provides. So that means God provides it, that's the first part, but we must strive to implement it or to act out on it. It's a bit like uh, what many of us have experienced when you get a piece of Ikea furniture, and perhaps it's delivered to your house. You've purchased it, it's been delivered, but the job's not done, right? You have to get it out of the box and pull all the pieces apart and get the instructions and then try to make sure that you put it together properly. Well, it's a bit like that. God has provided, he has purchased the unity and peace that we so desperately need and for which our souls long as human beings. He has purchased that by his death on the cross and the forgiveness of our sins, making us a new creature in Christ when we become a Christian. He's delivered it straight to us by his Holy Spirit coming to indwell in us. So we have it. But the job's not done. 
by his spirit's power, we also have to open up the box and put the pieces together and spend the time and energy that, need, that is necessary to live it out. So he says, complete the unity that God provides and then consider others, as you do so, as more important than yourself. Look at verses 3 and 4. This continues the theme of unity. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value or consider others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Consider others as more important than yourself. Humility is a distinctly Christian virtue. You do not find humility, or certainly not the biblically defined type of humility that the Bible talks about, you do not find that as a major value or even a minor value in almost any other philosophy or religion in the world. It is almost completely unique to Christianity, and Jesus exemplified it. And that's what he says needs to be a part of this picture. Unity requires humility. Why is the world divided and in such a tumultuous state at this current moment? Paul answers that for us. Not just why am I often in tumult and have this sort of war raging inside me and I'm, I'm constantly unsatisfied, but why is the world that way as well? Well, Paul tells us. It's because of selfish ambition and vain conceit. That is, the fundamental problem of humanity and in this world that we inhabit is selfishness and pride. Selfishness and pride. It can all be boiled down to that. That's what causes wars. That's what causes factions. That's what causes subgroups. That's what causes political turmoil, social turmoil, racial, racial turmoil. That's the cause of it. Selfishness and pride. And it's also what causes turmoil within our own personal lives and within the community of Christians known as the church. Selfishness and pride are the cause of all the troubles, which is just another way of saying our sin is the problem. This was not what God originally made the world to be, but you remember we thought, as humanity, we could do a better job than God. And look at the complete mess we've made of everything. Selfishness. <clears throat> Selfishness is the spirit of faction, we could say. It's my way or the highway. This is the tendency to think exclusively of oneself and what my actions or attitudes or words, uh, how they affect me and me alone. Who cares if I step on anyone else in the process? It's the person who says what I do is right because I'm the one who's doing it. It's unreasonable and it's unreasoning. It's me-centered instead of God-centered. And when your reference point is yourself, you can never rise above your own innate selfishness. And our society teaches us to continue to act in this way, act in a selfish way. Do you be who you want to be? Be the best you you can be. Just do it. Live your dream. It's all about you. It's all about selfishness and pride. That's man's conceit. This is the ultimate source of all trouble because it is the original sin or it gave rise to the original sin. It was the choice that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, made when they chose to go their own way. They said, no, God, we don't want you to be God. We want to be gods of our own lives. We want to have autonomy. We want the authority. We think we can do a better job than you, our creator. That's pride. 
They wished to be God, to have that absolute autonomy, and it plunged the world into the mess that we experience today. But before we get too annoyed with them for making that choice, the reality is we must recognize we make the same choice every day. Every day through our actions, our words, our attitudes, the way we treat other people, we show the, we show the same selfishness and pride. I want it my way, God. I want my autonomy. I want to live life my way. I know what you command. I know what you say, but I don't want to do it that way right now. But what does God say to Christians in this passage? He says, don't try to put yourself forward. After you've become a Christian, that's the starting point, then you have to have a change of mentality and action because you've had a change of nature. As you become a Christian, you've been born again. So be more concerned, therefore, with others, especially with what other Christians need, than with what you yourself need. It was passages like these and, and teachings like these that led the early Christians to start the first orphanages in the world, to start the first hospitals that were funded by charitable contributions who would help anyone who showed up on their doorstep, to start the first social safety nets to help those who were poor and outcasts. Why? Because they said, we can't just think of our own selves. We can't think of just buying our own house and having our own family and putting money in our own bank account. We must think of other people because other people at large are created in the image of God and especially my fellow Christian. I must think of him or her as well in a distinctly Christian way. And Paul says in order to do that, we have to humble ourselves in order to try to help others. The true obstacle to unity and peace with other Christians and the world as a whole is pride, and so we must humble ourselves. The issue is not legitimate differences. God delights, and when he created the world, he delighted in variety. Variety is a wonderful thing. Differences in the way people appear, where they come from, their background, their experiences, those are not the problem, and those are not the true obstacles to unity. The true obstacle to unity is the pride and the selfishness. But through humility, after you become a Christian, that pride and selfishness can be fought against. But what exactly is humility, this distinctly Christian virtue? Some think of it as uh, thinking really poorly of yourself. Beat yourself up. Tell yourself how terrible you are. That's, that's not humility. That's actually another version of pride because it's still very self-centered. It's internal gazing that keeps yourself as the focal point of the universe. What is true humility in a Christian context? C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this. He says, humility in a Christian context is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not beating yourself up, but it's saying, I'm not gonna start by thinking of myself. I'm gonna start by thinking of God, then others, and then myself. So let's begin to apply this. When you, if you are a Christian, when you attend church, why do you attend church? Let's just take that as an example. Since we're all here, it's church service. Why do you attend church? What I find interesting is often when I speak to someone who, whether they're a member, a long-term visitor, or a tender at our church, if someone moves churches and they say, you know, I'm going to go to this other church um, I, I just don't feel at home here anymore or whatever, I'll usually ask, you know, follow-up questions. Well, what's, what's the problem? What's going on? And one of the most common ones I'll hear is, well, I just don't feel like I'm getting fed. Or I just don't feel like I am growing. I just don't feel like people really appreciate me. Do, do you hear it? 
the selfishness and the pride inherent in those statements? Now, I'm not saying there, there may not be any legitimacy in what they're saying, but it's interesting. Right away, we see, well, the major part of the problem is you are viewing church in the wrong way. You think it's all about you. By definition, for a Christian, church is not all about you, and it's not about me. It's about God, and we have to keep that as the center. Or how about this? Why do you choose to speak with whom you choose to speak on a Sunday? When you come, and before service, after service, when we go to coffee, who do you talk to? Is it the same people every single week? Why do you choose who you speak to talk to, or who you invite over to your home, or who you invite out to coffee, or who you sit with at coffee? Is it because, and this is usually our default, it's just the people you're most comfortable with, you're closest to? That may be the default, but is, is that the way of seeking unity in the body of Christ? Seeking unity often will mean, you know what, I could talk to the same five friends that I talk to every Sunday, and that are in my small group, and that I talk to throughout the week, or on Sunday, I could instead go across the room, so to speak, to so-and-so that I haven't spoken with a while, for a while, or, you know, so-and-so is looking down today. Maybe they're discouraged. I'll, I'll go talk to them and pray with them. Oh, I don't know that person. Maybe they're a visitor, or maybe I just haven't run into them yet. I want to go and make sure they feel welcome. What are you doing? That is putting others first. That's the spirit of humility. But we move on from this to not only should we complete the unity that God provides and consider others as more important than ourselves, but also we should consider the change that we, if we are a Christian, have experienced. He says this in verse 1. He uses a rhetorical device. He asks questions, even though he's using the question to make a statement. The questions deserve an obvious answer, but it's, it's in order to get the, the uh, group that he's speaking to to listen, to think about their situation. So he asked four questions. Some of the modern translations don't put it in the form of a question because they just want to put it in the form of a statement, but it's, it's really better as a question to make us think. He says, if, is there any encouragement from being united with Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Is there any common sharing in one spirit? And is there any tenderness and compassion? Verse 1 is certainly not what you'd consider a sort of logical argument or a logical syllogism in that sense. It's an impassioned plea. It has great content, but it's an impassioned plea. He wants to get them to think, is there any encouragement from being a Christian, he asks. That is, does Jesus provide comfort and encouragement to those whom he saves? Well, every true Christian is going to respond, absolutely. It's extremely encouraging and comforting to know that the God of the universe chose to die for me, to save me, and I didn't deserve it. Well, he also says, is there any comfort provided by his love? Absolutely. That is one of the greatest comforts, to know that God loves me. Is there any fellowship or communion in the Spirit? That is, does God's Spirit coming to indwell a Christian when they become a Christian, does that provide a kinship with other Christians? And most importantly, does it provide a connection, a fellowship with God himself? Yes, it does. Is there any tenderness and compassion in the gospel when you experience it and receive it? Absolutely. So Paul says, if all that's true, and the obvious reality is, yes, all that is true, as every true Christian who has experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ would admit to, if all of that is true, therefore, fulfill my joy by being unified. Be unified with other Christians. If the gospel really makes a difference in a person's life, then pursue the unity that God provides through it. 
Fourthly, he says, cultivate the mind and action of Christ. Paul, yes, I want to be unified. I want to have the peace of God. I want to share that peace with other Christians first and foremost, and then other individuals in general. I want to do that, Paul. This is wonderful. I believe in Christian unity. I know I need to be humble. But how do I do it? Because it's one thing, of course, to say, be humble, be at peace with God, love one another, be humble. That's true. We know it's true if we're a Christian. But how do we do it? Well, we need an example to follow, Paul. Sometimes the best way to do something or to figure something out is to have an example. And Paul says, okay, here's the example. He actually gives four examples, but the first one he begins with is the greatest and the most appropriate example. It's Christ, verse 5. Cultivate the mind and the action of Christ in your relationships with one another. So in your pursuit of unity, in trying to live that out, have the same mindset as Christ. And by mindset, it doesn't, in this passage, it doesn't just mean think similar thoughts. It means think like Jesus, which will lead to action like Jesus. So it's both the thought and the action. It's both the intention of the heart and the, the outcome, the pursuit. And this is really the key to it all. Paul doesn't tell the Christian, notice, he doesn't tell the Christian, well, just forget about or downplay real differences that you have with your fellow Christian. You come from different backgrounds. You come from different points of view. You have different life experiences. You have different ages, different genders, whatever. He doesn't say just downplay that or ignore it like it doesn't exist, as if each and every one of us are just interchangeable parts. That's what the world does, especially in modern times. It just says there's no distinction between men and women, between individuals of different backgrounds. We're all just interchangeable parts like a machine. No, we are not a machine. We are unique individuals created in the image of an infinite personal God. There's no one exactly like you. No one has your set of characteristics, be they physical, spiritual, or relational. So he doesn't say, just downplay all that, ignore that, none of that's important. No, that's glorious. It's, it actually reflects back to our creator how varied and wonderful he is in his creation. So he doesn't say, downplay that. Rather, that may be the world's method. That's not the Christian method. Instead, Paul says, think and act the way Jesus does. How did Jesus think and act towards people of different backgrounds? He acted in a consistent, loving, humble manner towards them. You remember the woman at the well? A Samaritan. Someone who both historically, genetically, and currently socially, in his time and uh, period of history, the Jewish people would have nothing to do with. He was more than happy to speak with her. He was more than happy to speak with tax collectors. He even chose one of those tax collectors who all the rest of the Jewish people hated to be one of his followers. Matthew, who wrote one of the gospel accounts. Jesus showed that great love and humility towards all those with whom he came in contact without downplaying the differences of their background. He treated Romans and Greeks, Hellenists and Jews all the same as unique individuals created in God's image. But until you have been made to be at peace with God through the applied sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for your sins, you can't really experience lasting peace and unity that flows from God. There's only one source for the peace and unity we all want, and if you don't go to the right source, then you'll never experience in your own life, and we won't see it experienced in the world. When a person reads the Bible, if you sat down and especially read the New Testament, but really the whole Bible from start to finish, 
you'll quickly see how faulty and sinful humankind is, how our nature is twisted away from the things of God. We know certain things are right, and yet we don't do them. We see our failures, our shortcomings, and the Bible says God's word is a bit like a mirror. It shows us all those flaws as we look into it, if we will look at it honestly. We'll also see that we're made for and intended for a much greater purpose than we see lived out around us each and every day. So what must a person do in that situation as they see the challenging situation they're in? Well, they must humble themselves. They must come to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross who took the punishment for that sin and gave us the remedy. As Isaac Watts says in his wonderful old hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the king of glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The reason he pours contempt on his pride, the reason he humbles himself is because no one can stand at the foot of the cross and see God the King in human form dying a cruel and horrible death for me and my sin, paying the penalty. No one can stand there and have their pride truly stay intact if they have any sense. They must humble themselves at the foot of the cross. That's what the cross does. Even all the things I've accomplished in my life, my richest gains, they're all lost because none of them can save me. None of them can save me from this self-conceit, this selfishness, this pride I have inside of me, which is leading to all the disunity and the lack of peace. That and that alone is is the solution for humankind. It's the cross of Christ. Only once a person has experienced peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ are they then in a, in a position to experience peace and unity with other individuals. And only once they've been brought face to face with their own horrible sin and, and the realization of how grossly we fall short of God's standard will we then be able to be humble and seek the good of others first. Only once we become Christians, in short, Do we have the tools, not in and of ourselves, but the tools that God supplies and the power source necessary to pursue this peace and unity he speaks about? But this peace and unity doesn't simply happen. It's supplied to us. The box has been delivered, but we have to take it out of the box. We have to put it together. We have to practice it. We have to put it up. We must apply it. We must live it out. Now, Paul's about to say much more in the coming verses concerning Jesus and Christian unity and the example of Christ. But for today, we can summarize a few things we've seen. What have we learned? Well, one is that only once a person becomes a Christian can they experience and live out the peace and unity for which our hearts all long. It's vitally important to understand. Now, we are not saying by that statement and by Paul's argument and by the whole argument of Scripture, we are not in any way, shape, or form saying that no other human being outside of a Christian uh, might desire unity or peace or might even work for it in the public sphere, the international sphere, or in the sphere of their family. What we're saying is they will not have the proper foundation from which to work for that peace and unity. The desire for peace and unity is something common to all humanity because God has put a desire for that in our heart. But the ability to actually live in a peaceful manner, to truly pursue peace in the right framework, in a God-honoring methodology, the, the reality and the foundation of what it, 
What it needs for us to be unified with other humans, especially other Christians, is only found if we start at the right starting place, the right foundation, which is the right relationship with God, and only Jesus provides that. But secondly, Christians must be unified with others, other believers. So we, we must become unified and at peace with God through his salvation that he bought for us on the cross. We must humble ourselves at the cross, ask his pardon and forgiveness, ask for his salvation to be born again. But then Christians, once we become a Christian, we must be unified with other Christians and seek that unity, work towards that. How are you actively seeking, if you're a Christian here today, how are you actively seeking to be unified with your fellow Christian, especially in this local congregation. Of course, there's no way for us to be uh, fully and consistently actively unified with every Christian on the face of the planet at this given moment. There's a sense in which we, we do have a unity with them. One day that will be shared when we are before God in heaven. We're told that in the scriptures. But, but the practical side of unity, the day-to-day -day living of Christian unity, is and must by necessity be done in and amongst a local congregation of Christians with whom you banded together and you say, I am going to try, by God's grace, to be on the same page, to love them, to be at peace with them. What that means is when challenging situations come, when disagreements arise, when sharp words are said, we need to humble ourselves before God first, ask his forgiveness, and then go to that person and ask their forgiveness when we've sinned against them. That's what the scripture teaches. It means we need to walk into church with a different mindset. Why am I here? It's not all about me. It's about God first and how I can serve others. Okay, so how is that going to affect what you do? How is that going to affect, in a few moments' time, who you speak to right after the service? What you do if you go out to coffee or as you invite people over to your home or as you meet together in small groups? throughout the week, the manner in which you interact with Christians at this church, the way you pray for them. By the way, if you're struggling to be at unity and peace with another Christian in a congregation, if you're really struggling to feel like you're on the same page, one of the best things you can do is pray for them. Pray for them each and every day. It's really hard to be out of step with someone who's truly a fellow Christian when you are praying that God will bless them and help them, keep them from sin and temptation, that you, that you will be helped by God's Spirit to love them and care for them and be unified with them. That's a practical outworking of this as well. Pray for them diligently. So Christian, we must be unified with other believers as we seek to follow Christ. I want to end with an illustration or what you might consider an illustration that's also an application. I learned a song many years ago in, in kids' church Sunday school. Some of you may know it. I'm not sure if it's common over on this continent as well. But the first two lines of the song in kids' church went this way. Jesus and others than you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. It uses the word joy, J-O-Y, as an acronym. J, Jesus, others, O, Y, U. That's the proper way to have the joy that Paul is talking about in this letter. It's also the proper way to be at unity and peace with your fellow Christian. To have Jesus as your first priority. To have him as the focal point. And then to consider, not yourself next, but others. What can I do for my fellow Christian? 
How can I pray for them? How can I love them? How can I be at peace with them? How can I pursue Christ's likeness together with them? How can we go out and give the good news of the gospel together? How can we be on the same page and unified as a Christian body? And then and only then do you consider your own interests. You see, you come, you and I come last in the picture, but what does our society do? It inverts it completely and subtracts from it. It says your first consideration should be you, yourself. Why? You. It's all about you. Make sure yourself is taken care of, and then maybe, just with the people who are the closest to you, then maybe there are a few others you could spend a little bit of time with. But as long as it doesn't really affect you taking care of you, and we'll just ignore Jesus altogether. How is that working for us? Would you say our society is experiencing an overabundance of joy at this current moment? Goodness gracious, no. Look at the political ads. There's no joy in those. Look at our society and the way people treat each other oftentimes. Look at the struggles people are facing. Joy is not the characteristics we, the, one of the main characteristics we would pick. Why? Well, they're going about it in the completely wrong way. You will never have true joy, and you will never experience true unity and peace if you begin with your own selfish desires and pride. That will only lead to heartache, destruction, and disunity. God's way works because God's way is true. And Christ has provided all that we need through his sacrifice on the cross. And so once you have embraced Christ and taken his gift of salvation, then and only then can you pursue the Christian unity and joy and peace that he has provided for us. But we are required to live these principles out. That means active consideration, active choices. It means walking in step with the Spirit each day to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to follow his example. Let's pray. Father, we wish to practice that humility of which you spoke in this passage. And we humbly acknowledge that we have failed, failed to pursue unity with others in general and especially with our fellow Christian, to live at peace. Often we've failed because we just, it's not on our radar. We haven't actively even tried to apply it. We default to that position of thinking of ourselves first, and only then do we even consider others. We have failed, too, to realize that true unity and peace and the joy that springs from them can only happen if we start at the right starting place, which is the foot of the cross. And so I would like to ask two things, Father. First, I would ask for anyone here who has not yet come to the foot of the cross where Jesus died for them, that they would come, they would humble themselves, confess their sin and their selfishness and pride, and ask for your forgiveness and the gift of salvation that you alone can offer. And then secondly, we ask that for those who have already come to that place and have been radically transformed by you, that by your Spirit's power, you will help us to live out the implications of this new life you've given us, that we would live more and more like Jesus, especially as we've seen today in these areas of unity and peace with our fellow Christians. 
We implore you that you would make us a people and a local church congregation that when others come to visit, whether they're friends or family or just people off the street from this area, that when they come to visit, they would notice something different, not something that we're putting on, not something fake, but even if they can't put their finger on it, that they would see the unity and the peace and the joy that you provide to us and that we are seeking to work that out among people who are very different in temperament and background. But that's not what unites us. Rather, they would see, you know what? All those people who normally wouldn't all be united are united around something, and they say it's Jesus, and that they would in turn be interested in that Jesus because of the way we're living out the gospel. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.